Feel free to sit down. We don't always do a good job of uh, the verbal cues, and we don't have um, stars in our bulletins to tell you when to stand and sit, but um, hopefully you'll pick up with it, what everybody else is doing around you. Um, this has been a very busy week uh, for me. Uh, Sam and I spent the first three days this week uh, being trained in uh, what's called Build International. It's a um, discipleship and um, leadership training uh, curriculum that we are now certified in, hopefully, as long as they pass us. Um, but the idea behind it is to be constantly raising disciples who are raising disciples who are raising disciples, um, which sounds an awful light, lot like the Great Commission. Um, and then the second half of this week we spent at um, Acts 29 Boot Camp. And um, for those of you who don't know, we're part of a church planning network called Acts 29. And if you will turn to Acts 29 with me, uh, you will see that it doesn't exist. Um, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and so the idea behind Acts 29 is that as Acts shows the beginnings of the early church, um, Acts 29, uh, we see ourselves as just continuing that work, not um, being all that much smarter or greater, just continuing the work that God has for us. Um, I tell you about these things not because I'm trying to um, simply justify pastor's salary and let you know that we don't just sit around drinking coffee and talking theology, but um, also to remind us that as we read through the um, book of Joshua, really anytime we're sitting in the Old Testament, it's easy to um, just look at it as history, as narrative stories, um, and we can easily forget that the same God who leads the Israelites through the desert into the land of Canaan is the same God-man Jesus Christ who came to earth um, to reconcile us to himself is the same God who now dwells in our hearts, pushing us on to mission, pushing us on to uh, make new disciples, plant new churches, and continue his mission. So that said, um, as you read through uh, Old Testament, always remember that while these are stories that tell us about who God is, um, that who God is is the same God that um, we have with us today. So let's get going. Uh, we're in Joshua 2. So we continue the story of Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. Um, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Um, and chapter 2 is right between uh, chapters 1 and 3. So for those who aren't good with numbers. Um, so we've spent the last few weeks kind of introducing the book of Joshua, introducing who Joshua the man is, and basically bringing the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan River. And so they're sitting there now on the bank, and you would think that Joshua 2 would be the next step forward. Uh, but instead, uh, the Bible takes us uh, to kind of a different place, take, goes in a different direction, uh, in that it, it breaks into kind of this major story arc of the nation of Israel, and kind of takes a microscopic look at um, one little story that's happening uh, while they're camped there. Um, and for those who are a fan of Lost, um, it's kind of like a flash sideways. So you have your main story going, and then this is something that's happening at the same time that hopefully um, will bring um, something new to the larger story. So um, we're going to read about Rahab and two Israelite spies, which in some ways sounds like the beginning to a bad joke, but in reality is actually a very clear depiction of um, God's redemption and um, sanctification, um, and it's one of the kind of little nuggets we get here in the Old Testament. So Joshua 2, starting in verse 1, it says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two 
men secretly from Shittimus spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the story goes, um, just like Moses sent the 12 spies to to check out the land of of Canaan before, now Joshua sends out from... um, from where they're camped, he sends out two spies to check out the land of Canaan, and he says, especially look at Jericho, because Jericho was going to be the, one of the first major places that they would have to um, come to. Um, those spies go out, they go into Jericho, uh, they end up at the house of uh, Rahab the prostitute. Um, the king finds out that they're there, and so he sends soldiers to basically go and kill these guys. Rahab says, I didn't know who they were, so I sent them away. They went that way, so the guys go following. And the last thing that it says here is um, they shut the gate behind them. So we have um, the spies now stuck, basically, in the city of Jericho. Now, there's a few details that seem to be missing from this story. If you're kind of a um, narrative story guy, here's a few things that, for whatever reason, the, um, the Bible decided to leave out. The Israelites are camped on the other side of the Jordan, okay? The Jordan is a good-sized river. It's not a babbling brook. So somehow they had to get from there across the Jordan, um, and there's no bridge. So the Bible doesn't tell us how they did that. Somehow the spies got into Jericho. This is a heavily fortified city, um, but it just tells us they got in there. Somehow the king finds out that the men are in the city, and specifically that they're at the house of Rahab. But the Bible doesn't tell us how he found that out. And um, the biggest question that people seem to to dwell on is, um, what are the spies doing at the house of a prostitute anyway? Right? Now, the reason I bring up all these details um, are a lot of the commentaries that I went through spent the majority of their time on the things that God didn't tell us. Uh, They spent the majority of their time trying to read between the lines and figure out how this happened, how that happened, rather than focusing on what God has given to us. Um, I wouldn't mention it if I thought that this was something that only happened to commentators. Right? I think the majority of us spend quite a bit of time um, approaching the Bible, trying to find the things that aren't there rather than the things that are. And We approach the Bible to find the answers that we want to find or answers to the questions that we come to the Bible with instead of simply dwelling in the answers that God has chosen to give us. If we believe that the Bible is both inerrant, meaning it is true and without error, and that is is sufficient, meaning God has told us everything we need to know, um, then we should actually spend the majority of our time in what he has told us, in, in how he has chosen to reveal himself.
Uh, and this doesn't, this doesn't end at details to Old Testament stories. This could be uh, the exact age of the earth. Quite a few people spend all their waking hours in the Bible looking specifically for that. Or the exact um, events of the final days and when those are going to happen. Again, God has shown us what he wants to show us, and there is more than enough in here to occupy you for your life. Okay? So let's focus on what has been said rather than what has been purposely veiled or not revealed to us at all. So what does it say? Well, the first portion of the story here basically seems to be rapid-fire action. You know, it's, it's basically telling us what happened, giving us kind of a lay for this, lay, layout of the story, and introducing us to the characters. So part of the reason the details might not be there is because it's trying to get us to the meat real quickly. And we'll see the meat of this chapter is actually in verse 8 through 14. So who are the characters it shows us? Well, first we have the two spies, and the two spies um, are never named, and in this story, they actually don't initiate a whole lot of action. They, they actually tend to be sitting back and reacting to Rahab. So Rahab kind of becomes the central piece of this story, and um, it's not exactly how most of us would probably write the story, with the Canaanite prostitute as the hero. Um, it certainly doesn't make sense for a Jewish story. Because if you know anything about Jewish history, um, the fact that she was a Gentile meant she wasn't part of, of the Israelite nation. And then on top of that, she belonged to Jericho, which is a city that specifically had been devoted to destruction by the Lord. So just by proxy, she is devoted to destruction by the Lord. Now, on top of it, that there's the little word um, prostitute, right? So she also would have been looked pretty poorly on by those in the city that she lived in. She wasn't exactly a uh, queen or a princess. You know, she wasn't somebody who uh, demanded respect and attention. And for someone in her position, kind of a um, marginalized person in this Canaanite city, um, I think it would be pretty easy to use her moment in order to um, gain some respect. So the king is coming directly to her and asking her where the spies are, she can pretty easily become a hero for her city by just saying, they're right there, right? Doesn't take a whole lot. That's a pretty low-risk low risk answer. But that's not what Rahab does. Rahab lies to the king, putting herself in harm's way, um, in order to save the enemies of her country. So the big question is, why? What is her motivation? And that is the meat of the story. So we jump back into Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, 
and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, Rahab's motivations there seem to be kind of twofold. Um, I think that we can see certainly there's an aspect of self-protectionism that she wants to save herself and her family. Um, She makes a deal with the spies that basically says, my life for yours. Um, It seems very much that she is, um, she's working this situation for herself a little bit. And yet you have moments in there where she very clearly articulates a bold faith and a fear of the Lord um, that goes well beyond um, just recognition and acknowledgement of what God has done. Um, And so when we're grappling with kind of who is Rahab, how should we view her, um, it makes sense to search out the rest of scriptures and see how scripture um, introduces Rahab or explains Rahab. And so we're going to look at a couple of other places in the Bible where Rahab is mentioned. Let scripture interpret scripture, and then we're going to jump back into Joshua 2 and um, see what it has for us. So we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 11. If you turn to the back of your Bible and start turning backwards, it's an easier way to get there. Um, And Hebrews chapter 11 is uh, the by faith chapter. And so some call it the roll call of the faith. And basically what happens in Hebrews chapter 11 is um, it goes through the whole of Jewish history and um, shows how the faithfulness to God by these people um, led to um, the fulfillment of God's plan. And so right there in the middle of all these faithful characters, we have Rahab, who in verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So Hebrews tends to focus much more on her faith than it does focus on any other motivation she might have. Um, Rahab is certainly concerned with the welfare of herself and her family, but she's much more concerned with an all-powerful God. And the faith of Rahab doesn't mix words when she describes who God is. She has a bold faith, and it's a faith that does not say if, but says when. And that's really what sets her apart. At the beginning of Hebrews 11, go back to Hebrews 11, look at verse 1, it gives us a definition of faith. And it says, Faith is assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen. So that's what sets Rahab's faith apart, is she doesn't only look at what God has done, look back in the desert and see the dead kings, see the dried up Red Sea and go, okay, I believe in the God who did that, but believes that that same God is going to do what he says. And so in verse 9, when she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that's a pretty remarkable statement if you look at the context it was just being said. At the moment that she says it, There's two spies in her house. These spies would be dead if it wasn't for her. Um, The door is closed, so they're now trapped in the city. Um, Their army is on the other side of the river with really no way to get across. And the city that she lives in is the most fortified in the world at the time. And she would have known how thick the wall is because she lived in the wall. Okay, so we're not talking about wall or wall. We're talking, she lived in the wall. So it would be pretty easy for her to look around and go, okay, 
we're pretty protected from God here. His army is far away from us. I basically had to save these guys. God didn't save them. It took me. And now I'm in this, in this very safe place where God can't get me. But that's not what she does. She is entirely convinced that the city will be taken, that the God who did those things is going to keep doing what he said he would do. Now, if we contrast this with the last time the spies were sent out, if you remember, Moses sent 12 spies into the city of Canaan. Um, Ten of them came back, and what was their answer? They're big. They're big people. What are we going to do? And these people had been present at the crossing of the Red Sea, at those battles that Rahab is referencing. They were there. And yet when they saw the big people with their big walls, they said, our God is not that big. Two men said, it's ours. God will give us this land just like, he, um, just like he said he would. And that's Joshua and Caleb, who are the only ones who are still present with us here in this book. Now, it's easy to laugh at the Israelites, and I think we sometimes take delight in, um, in pointing out the... the failures of the Pharisees or the Israelites and going, oh, how could they have been so stupid? But in reality, let's contrast this with you or I. Um, we have all those stories. We know what God has done. I mean, they had three stories. We have how many? I mean, what do we know about God? Quite a bit. And we can see his faithfulness time and time again. We can look back through church history since that was written and see God moving his people. God continually pushing his mission, God fulfilling his promises. And in reality, if we look back in our own lives, we can continually see God's blessings getting us to where we are. And yet, as Candace talked about, a car blows up, and it just is the worst thing in the world. It overtakes our thought. We go, how could God work through this? It doesn't take a whole lot to shake our faith a whole lot of the time. We believe that God is enough most of the time as long as the problem doesn't involve money, relationships, or some aspect of social standing. But those are exactly the things that Rahab is living in and turning away from. She's recognizing not just what God has done, but that he will continue to do it. Now, we've talked about Rahab's bold faith, but Rahab's faith was also active. The writer of James reminds us that faith without works is dead, right? Not sick, dead, all right? And he uses Rahab as an example of what an active faith looks like. In James 2.25, he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith requires sacrifice, right? In order for us to believe one thing, it means we can't believe another. Active faith means the same thing. In order to live an active faith means there's things we can't do. In order to go this way, it means we can't go that way. And it means that we believe and trust in God even if where he's leading us doesn't make sense, or even if what he's asking us to do doesn't stir our affections as easily as this over here, if we decide that we're going to be faithful to God, it means that we might be required to act against our own rationality, 
our own reality, and possibly even our own personal morality. And we see all of these in the life of Rahab. Rahab acted against rationality by taking a risk that is well with beyond um, what most of us would consider reasonable. And we kind of talked about that already, but to lie to the king is treason. Had he come back to her house and found the spies there, she's dead. Um, again, she lets the spies out through the window with, yes, a promise from them, but honestly, she's risking her life again that, and hoping, you know, she has the faith that they will come back and deliver on their promise. It's kind of a high-risk, low-reward, you know, from an earthly perspective. But she fears God more than she fears men. And so in her mind, looking at it, it's, I'm dead already, and this is actually a low-risk, high-reward because I'm appealing to the God of the universe. Now, Rahab acts against her own personal reality by betraying her people. She takes the risk in order to save the spies of the enemy nation. And in that, basically walks away from the life she's, she's always known. She puts her faith in a future she doesn't know or understand. She has no idea what will happen beyond this, but says, I trust in God, not in some plan that I have set out for myself or something that I can see. And Rahab acts against personal morality by lying. Now, I actually don't know if what Rahab's personal morality is. She might have had no problem with lying. But she acts against at least something that is difficult for us. Um, this has become a matter of conflict for people reading the story of Rahab. This actually is where the majority of the um, commentaries spend three-quarters of their time. How can we condone her lying? How can the Bible say, do not bear false witness, and at the same time say, this person acted in accordance with God? And this paradox is going to be one that we face more than once before we get to the end of Joshua. All right, we're getting into the battles. We're getting into where God says, annihilate whole nations, annihilate whole women, children, annihilate them all. And if we fall back on our idea of who God is, that doesn't work. Uh, we'll see the Israelites stone. Um, one of their own. We will see many other details that make us make us shiver a bit and go, that's not the God that I've come to terms with. That's not the God that I learned about in Sunday school. That's not the God that, this God isn't easily defined. He creates situations that don't seem to fit into this web that I've created and put over my whole life. And I personally struggle with this a lot as soon as I actually got into a church and dug in. You know, as long as I was separated from people, I could have all the answers. You know, I could sit there, I had piddly little answers to every single situation. Someone would come up to me, I'd be like, well, John Freire says, and, you know, give someone the answer. This is exactly what you should do. But as soon as you dig in to fight with people for God, as, long as, as soon as you get into people's lives, as soon as you actually attempt to follow God on mission, not just stand back and throw rocks from a ways away, the answers become more difficult. They're not always cut and dry. They're not always black and white. There is some gray area, and it's in this gray area that we find Rahab. But the reason why Rahab was acting, or the reason why the Bible gives a positive review of Rahab's action, is because she was acting for God's glory. She was not acting for herself. In Exodus 20, when it gives us, um, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, 
Um, that specifically is talking about bearing false witness against your neighbor for your own gain. In this case, Rahab is actually stepping back. She's lying in order to submit to God's will. She trusts in God more than she trusts in her understanding of God. Let me say that one more time. She trusts in God, the real God, the living God, more than she trusts in her own understanding of God. And when you get to that point, when God actually shakes your ground a little bit, you don't get so scared that you go, this can't be the God that I grew up with. Now, I want to make very clear that I haven't just uh, made an excuse to sin. Because I can see where that could kind of work in. Oh, okay, so I just do whatever I want and pray that God redeems it on the other end. You know, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, so what's the point of trying to be a straight stick? That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is taking God so seriously and dwelling in him so completely that his glory is first and foremost on our minds and that we fight for that, fight for his glory. So instead of justifying our sin, we live an active faith that does the opposite. It doesn't make our sin okay. It makes everything an issue of discernment. And so those things that we've already decided are good, we recognize that they're filthy rags in order of, of earning ourselves to God. And those things that we've already said, oh, those are the bad things, we realize that sometimes God uses in order to um, push forward his mission. Every issue, every action is an issue of discernment. And it makes life a struggle. It makes it not easy to stand back and um, judge people because you're in there and you're trying with everything you have to deny yourself and seek God. But while it's a struggle, it's also an opportunity. It makes every moment, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, it gives you the chance to do all to the glory of God. I believe this is the tension that we live in. A lot of us grew up with the idea that the Christian life was about not sinning. Okay, the Christian life is not about not sinning. Because if you could do that, you wouldn't need Jesus. The Christian life is about viewing everything, both our good works and our sin, through the lens of a holy God. Now, Rahab had a bold faith. Rahab had an active faith. Rahab also had a changing faith. Rahab did not ask the spies to save her so that she can continue to be a prostitute in Jericho. The biggest risk that she took was stepping out of everything she knew to follow God. She realized that it was not possible to continue living the life that she had been living. As soon as she saw who God was, and she says, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, once she recognized who God was, it demanded a change. She came face to face with God and said, I must stop doing what I'm doing. And so she did. And when the walls of Jericho came down, we'll, hear, we'll read about this in Joshua chapter 6, the whole city crumbles and what's left? One little tower. Who's in that tower? Rahab and her family. She was saved from destruction but she was also saved to a new life, saved to a purpose. So she joined the Israelite nation. She was grafted into a new family. She married a man of some nobility named Salmon. And 
We know this not just because I'm making it up or because I read it in some book, but because it's recorded in scriptures. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. This section of scripture is the lineage of Christ. And so Rahab became part of Christ's line. She perpetuated the line that eventually led to King David and the greatest moments for the nation of Israel, and also eventually to Jesus, who then blessed the entire world. So Rahab's faith did not just save her immediate family, did not just bless those people here, it did not just bless the Israelite nation, but it blessed all of us. And God worked in the heart of a harlot to produce a faith that would eventually bring his glory to the whole world. So, jumping back into Joshua 2, we see Rahab now lets the spies out. She tells them to go up into the hills. She tells them to hide there for three days so that the uh, soldiers won't see them. And then they go back to camp and they share the news with Joshua. And their report ends with their declaration of faith. In verse 23 of Joshua 2, it says, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Why in the world would they believe that? They just walked in, saw a city that really they don't have the means to ever defeat. They got put in a position where they had to rely on Rahab in order to not be dead. And it was only by her that they got out and got back. And yet they say boldly, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Where does that faith come from? Well, I can tell you first where it doesn't come from. That's if you see the second line of verse 23. It says, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Their faith is not in the fact that the people are scared. That's an and also. Okay? That's a, and by the way, they're also scared, so we're really going to whoop butt. Right? Their faith is actually because they saw God's redemptive faith in the life of someone who had no reason to be had no reason to have faith in God, had no reason to be acting on behalf of God. And they recognized God's hand in the life of Rahab as it manifested itself through her words and her deeds. They recognized God's work, the same work that split the Red Sea, the same work that led them in the battles against Sihon and Og. Now Rahab is in many ways a type of us or an example for us. Uh, many look back to the story of Rahab as um, kind of a foreshadowing of the Gentiles being grafted into the New Testament. That's us. She's separated from God, both by birth, being a Gentile, and by who she is as a prostitute. Does that sound familiar? Separated by God with original sin, but also we choose to sin every day. She's being used by God even though really she has no right, no claim, no reason to be used by God. Sound familiar? Again, broken people sent on mission for God. And Rahab had a million and a half reasons why 
not to do it, why this doesn't make sense. Right? Rahab could have looked around her, we've gone over this, looked at the wall, you know, realized the reality that she was in and said, you know what, I'm going to make the easy choice. I'm going to come to God with all the justifications of why he can't do what he says he can do. But just like Rahab, God asks us simply to look at him in the face, to see who he is, to see what he has done, to trust that he will continue to do it, and to stop believing in the things that we can see over the God who created it all and who is living amongst us, who is still in control of it all, who can make things happen that we could never see coming, who could save a prostitute from an enemy nation, who could see all of our sin and still choose to come down from his throne, to live the life that we never could, to die the death that we never could in order that we could be reconciled to him. Faith is recognizing that we can come to God, but only through him, through Jesus Christ. That we are not worthy in any way, shape, or form, but he has made a way for us to draw near to him. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And if you've sat down with me any time over the last couple months, I've probably quoted that to you, because especially the second half of that, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's one of my favorite verses, um, because it gives us a picture of two things. Number one, of course I would want to draw close to the creator of the world, right? Of course, he's the greatest thing. I mean, that makes sense to me. But the second part of it, he will draw near to you, that still baffles me. It still baffles me that God would come and take any of his time to reconcile a sinner like me to himself and to entrust me in some ways with aspects of his mission. The drawing near to God begins by recognizing that we don't forcefully draw ourselves to God. That drawing near to God comes from as the beginning of that verse says, submitting yourself, therefore, to God. To realize that he has already done it, not that we can do it. And our faith becomes much more than just that which saves us. Our faith gives us the foundation to view the rest of our life. Our faith becomes that lens with which we view everything, every moment. It pushes us to action. It gives us the strength to keep going. It pushes us to be more conformed to the likeness of the Savior. It pushes us to struggle. It pushes us to constantly come face to face with God. And in Rahab, we are given a picture of what that faith is and what that faith can do. Now, we're going to come forward and take communion. Let's remember that in communion, we're not just acknowledging what Jesus has done, though we are doing that. That's not the whole of it. We're also submitting ourselves to his lordship. Our king is alive. He's on his throne. We submit ourselves to him and identify with his shed body and blood, remembering that it is our sins that made his death necessary. And we commit our lives to not just sitting in our faith, making sure our faith is prettier, is more 
figured out than everybody else's, but we commit our lives to follow him on mission wherever it sends us, recognizing that we're not ever going to be ready, we're never ever going to be clean enough, and most likely he's going to tell you to go somewhere that you're not entirely comfortable with. But it's a God who's done that over and over again, who promises to be with us, and just ask that we have our faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just, uh, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for constantly reminding us of the things that you've done in both your word, in our own lives. Please help us to remember who we are, sinners saved by your grace. Help us to remember who you are, sovereign God of the universe. And help us to recognize that you're not just a bunch of stories we read, but you're still working. And just like you can use Rahab, you can use us. I pray most of all that you stir our hearts and that when you do, we respond with a bold faith that trusts you more than what makes sense to us, that we respond with an active faith that isn't afraid to take the risks required to follow you, and that we walk in faith, excited about the changes that come with giving our lives up for you. Thank you for sending your son, for drawing us back to you. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your work here on earth. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.